A friendly warning, there are major spoilers for The Pale Horse by Agatha Christie in this episode. I think we're all quite comfortable with the idea of real-life events inspiring fiction. It's not for nothing that some of the most critically acclaimed films that come out every year are the ones that have based on a true story at the beginning. Crime fiction is no exception to this. I've talked about this a fair bit on this podcast, discussing the ways in which some of the most famous murder cases in history, from Crippin to The Brides in the Bath and more, inspired authors working in the golden age of detective fiction in the 1920s and 30s. That's the expected order of events, isn't it? A crime is committed, it becomes a public sensation with huge amounts of media coverage, and then shifts popular narratives around innocence and guilt. Writers respond to that, importing new tropes and ideas into their work, and readers recognise it. But what if it happened the other way around? What if life imitated art? One particular book seems to have had a strong pull on people in this regard, not only as an inspiration for murder, but also equipping would-be sleuths with the knowledge to save victims before it was too late. This is the story of The Pale Horse. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Agatha Christie's The Pale Horse was published in 1961, a long time after the so-called golden age of detective fiction was over. Although she herself started her career at the beginning of the 1920s, 40 years later many of her fellow detective authors from that prolific period of whodunits between the two world wars had passed away or moved on to different kinds of writing. Christie had broadened her range too, to be fair, writing romantic fiction as well as for the stage, but she never abandoned her original form. Indeed, by the time The Pale Horse came out, she'd pretty much published a detective novel a year for three decades. Of course, over time, there had been some shifts and alterations in her style. Later, Agatha Christie is generally characterised by more thriller-esque plot elements and less of a reliance on the true Golden Age rules. She'd always enjoyed breaking up appearances for her regular sleuths Poirot and Marple with books that focused on one-off characters, but these became darker and more preoccupied with contemporary themes. The Pale Horse is just such a book as this. The previous year, Christie published The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, a collection of short stories mostly featuring Poirot, and the year after she put out The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, a classic of the Miss Marple in St Mary Mead type. What came in between was utterly, completely different. There's something deeply disturbing about The Pale Horse. Perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised. Christie, after all, took its title from the Book of Revelation in the Bible, the full line being, And I looked, and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. It was about the fact that you had the this sort of cheerful, sunlit existence, which in the in the book, anywhere, where every someone seems to bounce through and it's it's almost got a kind of boy's own adventure quality the novel has. And that there are these little sort of 
fierce little seeds planted in the book, which just make me go, what's that doing there? What is that detail doing there? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with story. And yet, to me, that is the story. This is Sarah Phelps, a screenwriter who has now worked on five television adaptations of Agatha Christie works. Her latest, Of the Pale Horse, just aired on the BBC in the UK and will shortly be available internationally. It was the deep strangeness of the book, she says, that hooked her in from the start. So as I was kind of reading, I kind of became really focused on, for me, the things that didn't quite fit. And that's the way I've read all of the Christie's that I've worked on for adaptation, which is I think that there is an internal kind of conflict. And and in the future, who knows that somebody will do some incredible kind of like academic study on Christie and the conflict and tension between the book she wants to write and the book she knows people want to read. You know, popularity is a double-edged sword. People want to read a particular kind of book. They want to read a Christie. But I think that Christie wants to write about things that might not suit being popular, that might be a little bit more out there, a little bit more subversive, a little bit more sly. So she's got to contain them in a kind of, in a way that she sort of almost drops a clue she drops a little clue, something that doesn't feel quite right in the sort of tone of the story, and, and that's what I follow. For example, she was really struck by the seemingly strange tastes of the novel's central figure, Mark Easterbrook. There's a detail in the, in the um, story about Mark Easterbrook and that he lives in an area of the King's Road, which is actually pretty squalid. He doesn't need to live there. And people say to him, well, why do you live there? And he says, I like it. He likes the noise and he likes the kind of the the raucousness of it all. But even as he's saying he likes it, he also has this little detail where he talks about the smell of girls' unwashed hair. And it's sort of done with a kind of distaste, but also with a thrill. And I thought, well, there's a character detail that I'm going to follow. This all helped Sarah to set the tone of her own adaptation, which certainly dials up the weird and unsettling aspects of the plot. But they are there already. After all, the whole story revolves around a former village pub called The Pale Horse, which is now inhabited by three old women who seem to be witches. Mark finds out that they're part of a very efficient murder-to-order conspiracy. Pay your money, sign a contract, and these three will perform a ceremony that will soon see your chosen victim die of apparently natural causes, leaving you completely free of suspicion. Christie's description of the ceremony is a fascinating combination of the old and the new. A cockerel is slaughtered for its blood, but there's also a very scientific box that scans an object owned by the victim in order to better direct the supposed death rays in their direction. As Mark says, it's a ritual carefully designed to contain something for everyone, whether traditionalist or modern sceptic. It is, and I'm afraid this is where the serious spoilers come in, so beware, just a very clever piece of misdirection. What eventually tips Mark off to the true nature of the plot is the one thing that all the victims of the Pale Horse seem to have in common. They lose hair before they die. This is a really profound piece of symbolism, Sarah says, and it goes to the heart of how she sees Christie's work. 
but hair is important and it's sort of thrilling because hair is both this sort of you know the woman's crowning glory the beautiful tresses the silken mane the all the rest of it and yet it's also disgusting and you think about hair growing in the grave after death and sort of hair falling out of your head and hair sort of collecting in hair brushes and but you also think of the hair that was sort of shaved off people in camps and it it becomes rather rather horrible and as well as being this glorious thing that's about sex and life and everything else it becomes this sort of harbinger of of the of an apocalyptic sort of genocidal way of thinking about humanity it's it's really really unnerving and also you, you know that by this point people were understanding that radiation sickness um, made your hair fall out so it was it was for me when I was reading it, The Pale Horse, and just thinking obviously The Pale Horse is a pub, but it's also the, you know, a harbinger of the apocalypse, that all the time that she's writing in these sunlit villages and these sort of charming little fates and these tea parties on vicarage lawns, that there's this long, long shadow of, of horror that falls across it, the horror of a technology that can obliterate hum- a human being to a to a shadow on the wall and the horror of what an industrialized slaughter can do in you know in Europe and I just kept feeling this shiver going through my blood and thinking right then that's what I'm going to write about I'm going to write about what this feels like to live in this time and there'll be more on that after the break in history's secret heroes Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. So what, other than witchcraft, can make people die from apparently natural causes, but also make their hair fall out? Thallium is an element in the periodic table. It's a a metal. It's rather uninteresting as an element, but it 
does slightly more interesting things when it's made into a salt. If you swallow metals, they, they don't really dissolve in the body very well, so they're not such good poisons. But if you turn metals into salts by combining them with another element, then they become much more accessible to the body and they become much more toxic. And that's the case with thallium. So it's thallium salts that are really quite dangerous. This is Dr. Catherine Harkup, a chemist and the author of A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie. There's a whole chapter in that book about thallium and the pale horse, and I highly recommend it if you'd like to understand this stuff in more detail than I can fit into one episode. Anyway, here's what thallium will do to the unsuspecting poisoning victim. Well, this is the the tricky thing with thallium is a whole host of things happen to people. Thallium, from a chemical point of view, it's similar enough to potassium to fool the body. So the body needs potassium. It's essential to our health. So if the body sees something that looks like potassium, it grabs hold of it and it tries to use it in the same way. The problem is that thallium is not potassium, so it does a rubbish job. So it will stop enzymes working in the correct way. It will mess with your nerves and all sorts of other things because it's not doing what it should do. So then the body realizes that something is wrong and it tries to get rid of the thallium and it tends to get rid of it in saliva. So of course you swallow your saliva back down and the the stomach reabsorbs it and you just continuously re-poison yourself. So thallium is truly horrible and it's doing all of these little subtle, malevolent little changes within the body that if you make too many of those changes and adjustments can prove fatal. Because every body can respond differently to the presence of thallium, it can be really hard to diagnose that that's what's causing symptoms like hair loss, pain, nausea and hallucination. Historically, it has been very difficult to diagnose thallium poisoning because it produces so many different symptoms. And there was a a famous real life case in the 1970s, early 1970s, when there was a thallium poisoning. And there was one person who'd been poisoned with thallium and Oh, no, there were several people, and they had been seen by a combination of something like 43 medical experts, and not one of them diagnosed thallium. So you can see how deceptive and uh, particularly nasty this is as a, a poison. Even though Christie was very accurate in describing the effects of thallium in the pale horse, as a poison, it's rare enough still to give the reader a slight frisson of the supernatural. Unlike those golden age staples, arsenic and cyanide, it's not exactly common in detective fiction, although there is a Nio Marsh novel, Final Curtain, that also uses it. In the 1960s, when The Pale Horse was published, thallium was still fairly easy to get hold of, as it was used in creams for treating skin conditions like ringworm. And this is where fiction starts to intersect with real life. It's uh, astonishing that Agatha Christie has been cited in a murder trial. Not many fiction writers have that dubious honour. But there was a case, uh, a man called Graham Young had poisoned several of his colleagues at work and he had used thallium. And this had occurred in 1971, 10 years after the publication of The Pale Horse. And if you read The Pale Horse and you read about the Graham Young case, There are so many similarities and parallels. It is unnerving. So I'm not surprised that people ask the question, 
was Graham Young inspired by the Pale Horse. Now, to be honest, Graham Young had such a, an unhealthy obsession with poisons and poisoning people. And he did his own research. He was frighteningly well read in this area that there was nothing Agatha Christie could have taught him. He he knew it already. So um, it, it, he claimed he'd never read the book, but his sister said that it was the sort of book he might have read because of the, the subject matter it would have interested him. Catherine has actually written a much more detailed account of Young's astonishing career as a poisoner, which I'll link to in the show notes. But suffice it to say, he was a very unpleasant man who started off by putting atropine in his sister's drink when he was a teenager and ended up doctoring the tea run at the factory where he worked with thallium and poisoning eight people, two of whom died. And like the culprit in The Pale Horse, it was his hubris and desire for the spotlight that gave him away in the end. He seized the floor at an employee meeting about the illness that was going around the workplace and talked in such detail about metal poisoning that he aroused the suspicion that eventually resulted in his prosecution. He'd evaded capture for so long, for precisely the same reason that the murder in the book does too, because he carefully chose poisons that gave his victims natural-seeming symptoms, so that the real cause of their illness wasn't identified until it was too late. Thallium poisoning can be quite effectively treated with a compound called Prussian blue, Catherine says, which traps the thallium within its structure so it can be excreted safely. But it has a much higher chance of working if administered early on. However, despite all the notoriety that Graham Young brought to Christie's book, the legacy of The Pale Horse is not all grim. This is the worrying thing about doing research into poisons. I mean, seriously, if the police ever come through my front door and look at my shelves, I'm in trouble because it's a worrying collection of books that I have. And it must have been exactly the same for Agatha Christie. And the risk of writing books like The Pale Horse, are you going to inspire someone to mimic these actions? Well, I, I would hope not. And actually, to counterbalance that, The Pale Horse, because of its accuracy, because of its attention to detail, people have recognised thallium poisoning in others and been able to save lives. So knowledge is never in itself good or bad. It's what you do with that knowledge. So having accurate descriptions of poisoning can be of enormous benefit in one circumstance, but the very, very, very slim risk that people like Graham Young stumble across it. So there you have it, a spooky story with a solid scientific basis that may well have inspired a real serial poisoner. As someone who reads detective fiction for fun, the idea that there might be someone out there reading not for entertainment, but for practical tips, is darker than anything Agatha Christie ever dreamed up herself. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. 
I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, all at sea. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.